0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, ProPublica reporter Alec McGillis points out that in 1980, virtually every area of our country had mean incomes that were within 20% of the national average, with only Metro New York and Washington DC above that, and only parts of the rural South and Southwest below it. But by 2013, almost all of the Northeast corridor from Boston to Washington and the Northern California coast had incomes more than 20% above average, and much of the country's interior and income uh, had incomes uh, more than 20% below it, not only the rural South and Southwest, but much of the Midwest and Great Plains as well. And the trend has continued to this day. Yet even as the regional divides grew, they received relatively little attention. Uh, the book, which is published by Farrar Strauss, and Giroux, takes a look at the growing role Amazon has been playing on American life and uh, and uh, this story. And it brings Mr. McGillis to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Leonard.
0: I- ironically, your book is being made available by Amazon Books.
1: Yes, Didn't Amazon um, begin as a seller of books? Um, you know, it's you, one can get it there. And I actually ordered a copy there myself just as a <laughs> kind of as a lark, and it, it, it arrived a week late, unfortunately. I don't know what happened there, but um, but you can, of course, also get it at, at all sorts of independent bookstores that are happy to sell it to you. I, I'm just hoping that um, people can read it any way they can see fit. Um, so I, if, if, if that means buying it from Amazon, that's fine, but there are plenty of others that will be glad to sell it to you.
0: You note that the pandemic has been very good for Amazon's bottom line. Its sales grew 40% last year. And its owner and founder, Jeff Bezos, is now the richest person in the world with a net worth of, depending on who's doing the counting, around $190 billion?
1: Yes. I mean, it's really one cannot overstate just how much bigger Amazon got this past year. The the company was already huge. It was it already controlled about forty percent of all e-commerce in this country, which is way more than than anyone else. And uh, but then this past year, of course, it was just an explosion in in their size. Mm-hmm. They've they grew, their sales jumped up about forty percent um, last year. There they had to hire four hundred thousand more people. Um, Amazon's uh, stock went up about 85 percent Bezos' personal wealth went up 58 billion over the year it's 58 billion with a B um, and um, and it was all because you know all of us just uh, embraced the the uh, the one-click sort of uh, existence as even more than before we just um, we kind of got the the uh, permission from the authorities to to, to, to go full full, in, full on with, with e-commerce and, and, and just um, uh, kind of embraced it with alacrity. And so now you have a company that is even bigger, even more dominant than it was um, just a year ago.
0: Isn't Bezos planning to step down as Amazon CEO? Hey, doesn't he say that he'll, it'll give him more time to focus on other ventures, I guess, like space flight and some of the other things he's become interested in?
1: He, he he. Yes, the company made that announcement uh, about two months ago. Now, uh, it seems likely that he will still be very involved in the company. Um, even now that he's kind of moved upstairs, been kicked upstairs, the uh, he does want to spend more time on his on his space company, and and he says he also wants to spend more time helping oversee the Washington Post, which he owns, but. My sense of it, and I think a lot of other people's sense of it is that he'll still be very involved. And one, one benefit of his uh, giving up the title of CEO is that he will not be having to go to Washington to testify before Congress. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be lots of calls for Amazon to come and testify on various matters. And now that'll be left to, to, his, uh, his, to his replacement to have to do that work. That's sort of you know un, unwelcome sort of work.
0: Although your book is centered on Amazon, would you say that it's also an economic history of the country through the lens of the people who live and work in Amazon's shadow, um, as their their cities and states are transforming around them?
1: Absolutely. the The book actually started not being about Amazon at all. I, I wanted to write a book about regional inequality, the regional disparities that you mentioned at the outset, that have been growing bigger and bigger in this country, and that are so unhealthy for the country. I've been thinking about that problem as as I travel around the country as a national reporter for for more than a decade now, and and then uh, after Trump got elected in sixteen, I decided that it was time to write a book about it because it was clearly this this regional regional inequality was clearly having an effect on our politics and really kind of distorting our politics, and and so I decided to to write about it and to use Amazon as the frame to tell that story um, of, of regional disparities. And, and I chose Amazon as the frame for two reasons. One, that the company is simply so ubiquitous now, it's so so universal in our country and so omnipresent in all these different forms that it's just a handy thread to kind of take you around the country and what we're becoming now as a society um, with, with the Amazon sort of all around us, it's just an, a good kind of metaphor for who we are now But then it's also a good frame for telling the story because it has itself contributed to regional disparities. Um, Our our regional uh, inequality in this country is in regional concentration of wealth in a handful of cities is linked very closely to the concentration of so many parts of our economy in certain companies. Um, And so that's why I I took Amazon as the frame to tell that story of regional disparity.
0: Because it's the second largest private us employer and uh, as you're pointing out america's being divided into winner take all places and left behind places uh, are the two uh, becoming increasingly isolated
1: yes we're, we're we're becoming in a way we're probably becoming strangers to each other um, through our through these through these disparities we we have we've always had richer and poorer cities and regions in our country of course but those gaps have just gotten a lot bigger and and so you end up with just these 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 places, two different sorts of places that are just wildly different in all sorts of ways um, to the point where, where they have become sort of unrecognizable to each other. And what I, so you have on the one hand, sort of what I call kind of winner take all cities like Seattle and San Francisco, New York, Boston, DC, and some others, and then a whole a much larger group of kind of left behind cities and towns, not just rural areas, but also cities that have, that have really been left behind, you know, like, like Baltimore, where I live and, or St. Louis or, or Cleveland or Milwaukee, and just a whole bunch of others and, or, or Dayton, Ohio, which is another place I focus on in the book. And, and what I suggest in the book is that this growing disparity is not good for either sets of places. Um, it's not good, obviously not good for the left behind places that are, that are dealing with, um, you know, just sort of blight and abandonment and, 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 Kind of pervasive feeling of loss uh, and sadness, and then it's also not good for the for the winner take all places because they're dealing with just all the effects of hyper prosperity of crazy crazy housing prices and homelessness and displacement of long time residents and, and congestion and loss of character, and so we're, we've just gotten kind of out of kilter, and 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 that's the, the book is is about that sort of uh, about that out of kilterness and how we got there
0: i'm surprised that baltimore is one of the left behind places because of its proximity to one of the winner take all places washington dc
1: yes you that's what makes it so especially striking and 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 why i actually a lot of the book is actually um about that divide that extraordinarily stark divide two cities just 40 miles apart one hour on the train um and i've i've lived between those in one or two of those cities over the past two decades now, kind of going back and forth between them. And and it's just been astonishing to watch the gap grow to the point where it's just, it's utterly bewildering now. If you make the trip from one to the other, just the it's almost like a difference in atmospheric pressure. You almost feel kind of dizzy when you go from one to the other. Um, and, and Amazon's a big part of that story that um, it's just such a classic example of what's happened around our country that you now have, um, you have Amazon, Essentially, having having chosen to make Washington D.C. its its second headquarters, um, it's going to put twenty five thousand high paid jobs there, invest billions in a whole new corporate campus there, and even though the city was already very expensive and crowded, you think they wouldn't want to go there, but they did because because that's how things work now. This it's a winner take all effect, a rich get richer effect, where the company like Amazon feels like it needs to be. In the place that has the high-skilled workforce already that it can kind of draw on, and and so it's so it chooses Washington, which is the richest metro area in the country, for a second headquarters, and then meanwhile just up the road, Baltimore, which so desperately could have used a headquarters like that, all those um, high-paid jobs, is instead becoming sort of the warehouse town. It's it now has three large Amazon warehouses in or around the city. Um, and um and they're in very symbolic locations one is and two of them are at the site of a, of a former steel steel mill the largest what was the largest steel works the entire world um has now been turned into a warehouse business park with two amazon warehouses and then there's also a gm i'd,
0: I'd imagine that the salaries that the the the, the pay uh in that uh, steel mill was a lot higher than it is in the amazon warehouse
1: absolutely and uh, that's and actually it was. It's now it's less than half um, of what one would have made at the steel mill. The steel mill at the end, a rank and file worker would have been making about thirty-five bucks an hour, and now at the warehouse you're making fifteen. Um, and, and I actually found a gentleman um, who who went from working, spending more than three decades working at the steel mill, to driving a forklift at the warehouse and the exact same piece of land. And and, and making so much less money and finding so much less meaning and fulfillment in his work that he ended up quitting after just a few years in the warehouse, he just couldn't take it. Um, and. And, it, and I sort of in the book I use his 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 story and the story of that that one place. It's it's called Sparrows Point. It's a peninsula outside Baltimore that had just has gone through this extraordinary transformation of of a steel mill with thirty thousand jobs hmm. um, at its peak, an entire company town um, just wiped clean off the face of the earth, and now replaced by a bunch of warehouses.
0: His is just one of the in-depth stories uh, that you tell of a number of people. Not all. Connected directly to Amazon, but uh, all affected in some way. Uh, can we blame Amazon for the, some of these problems?
1: It's 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 complex. The there I, I see it in sort of two sides of a coin, or or in two different um, two different levels. Um, a lot of the um, what the book describes is. Is a story of larger forces, right, that have been underway for decades. Whether it's technology and our, 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 so much of our lives shifting online, and and then also you know globalization and and uh, the loss of manufacturing in the in the U.S. and lots of larger forces, and and Amazon, um, in a, in a sense, kind of just has moved into those voids, um, and 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 just in a sense, kind of profited hugely off of. Off of those forces those larger forces whether it's the shift e-commerce or or the loss of manufacturing jobs you know that have, has made a lot of these towns and cities so desperate for for the warehouses so desperate that they're willing to fork over huge tax credits for to have amazon come to town so in a sense it's just it, you have these larger forces and that's what amazon will sort of tell you that's what they told me when i spoke with them like look we're just we're just we happen to be the company that has benefited from this set of forces and circumstances. It just as well could have been a different company, um, but but at the same time, what the book also shows you is that there are all sorts of specific things that the company has done to to make things make a lot of these things worse and to make a lot of these effects. Uh, even more dramatic and so the fact that the company has been as aggressive as it has in pursuing um, tax avoidance at all different levels um, of government the fact that the company has such extraordinarily high demands of its workers that make work in the warehouses so so unpleasant that that there's basically 100 percent turnover from year to year Um, the fact that the company chose to put its second headquarters in Washington instead of um, instead of Thinking more broadly about what might be, you know, good for the country, and that you could actually s- restore some balance to our our great regional disparities if if it had decided to, p- to put the company in, say, a St. Louis or somewhere like that. Um, so or New York, I, I, which I, we'll get to later. Why yes. it didn't
0: uh, wind up uh, moving to New York, but we'll we'll talk about that in a little while. Sure. Still, uh, it, its impact has been incredible. You you point out that in Seattle. High paid workers in new office towers have displaced a historic black neighborhood in suburban Virginia. Homeowners try to protect their neighborhood from the environmental impact of a new data center. Um, uh, uh, There was a battle in Virginia over a power line to Amazon's data center, which at first would have seized land from residents of a century old African-American enclave. So, So a lot of this also has to
1: do with racial disparities, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. There's, there's a theme of racial, racial disparity and racial displacement throughout the book. Um, the, as you mentioned, I, I, I focus, I spent a whole, uh, section of the book in the, in the historically black neighborhood of Seattle called the Central District, which was, um, you know, of course created, uh, way back in the early 20th century through, through redlining and other forms of discrimination that kind of, um, Limited um, black residents to that part of town, and but it, it then grew into an uh, incredibly vital neighborhood that produced all sorts of uh, musical legends, including Quincy Jones and Jimi Hendrix, and and you know a real um, sort of a real strong neighborhood character, and and it has now through the this extraordinary prosperity that has been brought to Seattle by above all by Amazon, um, it's. It's, it's basically, it's all but been erased. I mean, you go there now and you cannot believe that this is, was a great um, historically you know, black community there that is now you see barely, there are virtually no traces of it left. Um, and um, so I, I, I tell that story and just how, how having that kind of that level of hyper prosperity in a place like Seattle just ends up just utterly changing um, the character of the city.
0: My guest is Alec McGillis, whose new book is called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America, published by Farrar Strauss and Giroux. So uh, you say that Amazon's become a force in Washington, D.C., a city that also uh, had a very strong uh, population of color. Uh, has it had an Im- impact in Washington as
1: well? Oh, definitely. The, um, I mean, the, the there's it's just the displacement of Washington's very large, you know, very um, uh, really kind of you know legendary kind of black working middle and working class has been it's just incredible these last few years, and then that 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 goes far beyond the Amazon um, to just the what has happened in, in Washington generally with this extraordinary surge of wealth that has come to the city through two main avenues. One, the incredible growth in the lobbying industry over the last couple of decades that's made that just a hugely lucrative um, business that has brought just so much um, really kind of obscene levels of wealth into the city. And on top of that, you had the the more recent growth of the kind of Homeland Security military industrial complex that followed 9-11, just this incredible growth of spending on on various forms of military and uh counterintelligence contractors and so washington has just you know turned from this fairly you know sort of sleepy government town into this um bastion of immense wealth and and as that has happened the um that you've had just this inc- just massive levels of displacement of of black residents from the city by, by gentrification on a scale really beyond what any other city has seen. Even they, by one serious study a year or two ago put quantified it as you know twenty twenty thousand black residents displaced by by basically mm-hmm. by rising housing prices in just the last decade or so, and that and that's in a city that's of only you know six or seven hundred thousand people. So just. Um, just an extraordinary level of displacement, and now on top of that, you're going to have Amazon coming in with these twenty-five thousand additional high-paying jobs just across the river in Arlington, um, and and so that that effect is just going to be greatly exacerbated.
0: How much of Amazon's cloud has come as a result of Bezos' purchase of the Washington Post in 2013? I don't know. Were you were, were you at the Post at that point?
1: I had left just. Um, just a year or two earlier uh, prior mm-hmm. to, to his, his buying the paper and and yes this, this is this is this is something I the book gets into and it's very important for us to sort of reckon with this, just um, his purchase of the paper and, and 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 more broadly his his and the company's inc- incredible kind of takeover of Washington in general um, the you know his buying the paper was on the one hand certainly kind of an, an altruistic, gesture to 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 help this story newspaper that that was that was struggling like so many newspapers were and to take it off the hands of the family that had owned it for decades and and he hasn't invested a lot of money into the paper and and made it given it more resources and and certainly improved it in a lot of ways so that's a good thing no question um, but it has also uh, created an extraordinary level of awkwardness for the newspaper, um, when it comes to not just covering Amazon, um, they, the paper does a you know a serviceable job of covering Amazon. They do. They have a reporter who covers them in Seattle, and and they they, they take some tough shots at the paper at that at the company here and there. But what's been hard for the paper to cover in a, in a really comprehensive way is the is really what it's amounting to a takeover of, of the entire city by, by Amazon, an incredible growing presence in Washington by this company and by Bezos. The company, Bezos bought the newspaper. He then bought the largest mansion in town, this incredible sort of double wide mm-hmm. mansion that he spent $35 million on to sort of turn it into, into a kind of salon for, for power gatherings. Um, you have to describe
0: it more because it is kind of astounding that building uh, the just the, the numbers of of um, bathrooms and living rooms and uh, and even
1: doors. Yes, it's it was a former museum. It was the textile museum, and and it, uh, two separate buildings, adjacent buildings, both each designed by um, a famous architect, including uh, John Russell Pope, um, very famous architect, designed one one of the two, and. Um, and so, it's the, yeah, it's the most the most expensive residence in the city of Washington, that, a city that has lots of expensive residences. Um, it's in the Calorama neighborhood um, where um, the Obamas now live and Jared Kushner lived when he was in Washington. And, um, you know, it's the, the elite sort of part of town, near downtown. It, um, it has 25 bathrooms, which is an mm. astonishing figure, especially when one considers that many warehouses, Amazon warehouses have... Not enough bathrooms, um, so people have to walk um, hundreds of yards, um, you know, just to to find one. And um, and it has a ballroom. And it's 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 as as the as the Washingtonian magazine put it when they when they got their hands on the renovation plans, the, the blueprints, um, it, that you know, the, his um, his ambitions for this 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 extraordinary double wide mansion have farinowic. Mm-hmm. Uh, proportions ambitions i I hope i'm pronouncing that right yes Um, so yes it's 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 really quite something and so you have him buying that mansion then you have the company greatly increasing its lobbying spending that's now the second largest lobbying spender um in the entire city um did that
0: lead to the feud with donald trump that began in 2015 or was trump more upset about the way the Washington Post was covering him.
1: It was it was more the Washington Post. He he mm. saw the post, you know, like the Times as being too tough on him and the post was owned by Jeff Bezos. So he as you know he liked to call it the Amazon Washington Post. Um, mm. and and then on top of that, you have the company getting tons of contracts, federal contracts for its um, for its cloud services. And you know that the Amazon has this whole half the company that its most lucrative part of the company is Amazon Web Services, where, which provides um, cloud um, cloud services to companies in the government in all those data centers where you essentially outsource your all your your sort of server needs to to Amazon and so it's been getting massive government and military and CIA contracts for that and then finally it now it has, it has decided to put this its second headquarters um, in Arlington just across the river and so you have um, th- this one company just developing this hugely uh, influential profile and presence in, in Washington. And, and that, has, that is an awkward story for the Washington Post to tell in full.
0: Well, the Washington Post is generally thought of as a liberal-leaning newspaper, and yet Amazon is doing everything it can to fight unionization with anti-union messages sent to the workers and, uh, and hiring law firms that specialize in fending off unions.
1: That's right, but but it's but but we have to also keep in mind that Amazon, despite the, the, those kind of actions, is um, is very popular with with Democrats and with liberals. Um, it was there was an incredible poll that came out a couple of years ago, a very serious poll, showing that the most admired institution in America among Democrats was Amazon,
0: cool. head
1: of head of the press, ahead of government, ahead of higher ed, ahead of unions. Um, it was third most admired among republicans behind um, behind the, the military and the police and matt um, gates the um, the and then you know you look at the the companies the, the sort of like the market data shows that these amazon is you know universal now as a company of course it sells everywhere but its strongest demographic is really Um, big blue metros like New York or Washington or Boston Um, Walmart still holds its own with a lot of you know rural redder parts of the country Um, but but in the big blue metros Amazon is king and that's why you see all those boxes stacked outside Manhattan apartment buildings and um, or in the lobbies and and you know overwhelming the the poor doormen who have to deal with these boxes and and so and, and Amazon in a way grew only more sort of popular among Democrats because Amazon, because Bezos bought the the, the post and was, and was kind of getting in, in this, in this occasional war of words with, with Trump, it only helped to sort of solidify the company's standing on the left. And, and so so what's going on right now, where you have this big union fight and also a looming fight over antitrust um, and whether we should do something to reign in Amazon in Washington is really in a sense a very inter- a fight within the left. It's it's you have some people who are deciding who, who think it's time to take the company on whether through organizing or through antitrust, but you have, have a whole lot of broader democratic sort of consumer America that is actually quite fine with a company and and also plenty of sort of de- elite Democrats who have gone through the revolving door to, to work at Amazon or other big tech companies. So it's, there's a, it's a very interesting kind of reckoning happening now within the left around Amazon and the other tech giants.
0: And that's despite the fact that Amazon has suggested that it might shut down the entire Bessemer Alab- Alabama warehouse uh, if it's 6,000 workers were to vote to organize. The vote is uh, is going to be decided today, right? Do do we have any well, sense of where it where where it's going?
1: We're yeah, we it's it's taken more than a week now to, to count these votes. It's a very very complicated process, apparently, and but it could the results could come any time. Um, I, I, I I won't make any predictions, but I'll just say that the odds are so stacked against these workers. Um, it's uh, Amazon really pulled out all the stops in in trying to um, dissuade. Workers from voting for the union, and one of the one one key thing the company did, which hasn't got enough attention, is that it um, and it made sure to to broaden the size of this organ of this bargaining unit as as wide as possible to 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 include what's now almost six thousand workers that are eligible to vote in this election, and 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 that that number includes a lot of people who you normally would think of as sort of supervisory or managerial types. And and so it, it makes it harder for the union to get a majority, a fifty-one percent majority, when you when you you know get make the, the denominator that large. And so the company was very deft at at, at, at sort of they kind of won that 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 early f- battle, uh, which um, is very crucial. And um, so who who knows? But it's it's definitely it would be extraordinary if they were if the union were able to pull this off.
0: Why did you choose the people you profiled in particular, a forklift driver and a salvage seller from Baltimore, a lawyer turned artist and a gospel choir leader from Seattle, a, a young politician and, and a truck driver from Ohio? Uh, is because you wanted to show the, uh, the range of, uh, of people who have been affected by uh, Amazons showing up in their towns?
1: It was. It really varied from person to person. And in, in some cases, there were just people I came across in my reporting who I thought were fascinating and who I thought um, illuminated these divides and illuminated, or you know. This whole ecosystem that that stands behind a company like like Amazon. Do, so, for, for instance, I was doing a documentary um, for PBS in Dayton, Ohio, a couple of years ago, and I found came across this young man who was living in a homeless shelter with his family in Dayton, um, even though he had a job at the time, and his job was making cardboard for Amazon. And I thought, yeah. my goodness, here's a guy at the very sort of bottom of that. That food chain, that supply chain, um, making the boxes that we all that we all depend on for to get our, our stuff on the porch, and 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 so that's so he made it into the book um, as a in that way, and then um, and then one day I was uh, going to meet with some ret- retirees from the steel plant in Baltimore, steel mill in Baltimore, and was asking hoping to find someone who's who's maybe had a grandson or granddaughter who worked at the warehouse that now stood in the same place as the steel mill because I thought I could tie a nice kind of generational arc that way and lo and behold uh you know a man named Bill Bodani comes comes up to me and says I I worked at the at the warehouse um I was at the steel mill and now I'm at the warehouse and I thought my goodness there, there it is right there that um that that I didn't even have to have to find a grandson or granddaughter I had had the transformation, that, that, that arc right in one person. Um, so it's, it really um, it just, uh, you know, you, you sort of, you come across people and you think, this person has an amazing story that relates to my story, and, and I'm going to include him or her.
0: Amazon employs about 1.3 million people worldwide. Uh, how much of that is seasonal employment? There's a, a film, Nomadland, in which Francis McDormand's character travels the country in search of work in a van, and she takes a job at an Amazon fulfillment center through the winter holiday season. Uh, in researching this book, did you meet any nomad nomad workers?
1: Uh, no, I did not meet any of the, um, the the you know the older folks who who drive around in, in the in the RVs and the campers, hmm. in the vans. That's you know it's called the Camper Force. Amazon's Camper Force. Um, the and, and I should just note that the 1.3 million employees do not even include those those many temp workers that they bring in for the holidays. They're actually relying somewhat less on, on that temp holiday work these days. Um, they, they've just hired so many full-time people um, that there's somewhat less need f- f- for the holiday workers. Um, the, the 1.3 million figure also does not include hundreds of thousands of truck drivers. I think about 500,000 truck drivers in addition to the 1.3 million those truck drivers are mostly uh contractors they're working for contractors which is very um uh suspect because they are all they do is deliver amazon packages and they wear amazon jerseys and they drive amazon vans but but they're they're not not amazon amazon employees (laughs) exactly um and um so and i and I would just say as uh, to to Nomadland, which was I, I really enjoyed the movie, found it very moving um but it and i but it's worth noting that the movie's depiction of work in the warehouses is, is strikingly more mm-hmm. benign than the depiction mm-hmm. of the warehouses in the book that the movie is based on um Jessica and Bowie we'll get her. to that
0: we'll yes. get to that after we take a break, yeah obviously uh Francis McDomald character walks a lot slower, and there are no robots, but we'll get to all of that in in just a moment. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Uh, Okay, well, before we get back to my conversation with Alec McGillis, I, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard financially by the pandemic, and a lot of our longtime contributors have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopate at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You can do that by calling 212-209-2950 right now or by going online to give to WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support us without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard at Large. If you call 212-209-2950 or go to WBAI, go to give to wbaiorg Today, we will be happy to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America, by my guest, Alec McGillis. All you need to do is call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. Sign up at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is the easiest for you. And that's it. We'll take care of the rest. You don't even have to mention the book or to the call center operator or check any additional boxes online. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopin at large during today's show and my staff will take care of the rest. And BAI buddies are a great way to support this program while giving the station a steady source of, of uh, income. But however, you choose to contribute the important thing is that you take that critical step to keep the show and this legendary radio station the only one in new york radio that's 100 percent listeners sponsored on the air we don't we don't take corporate underwriting underwriting or, or funding grants of any kind so one last time the number to call 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org online. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the show and the station, thank you for your support. And uh, let's get back now to my guest, today's guest, Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. And we're discussing his new book called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. Uh, it's published by Farris, Strauss and Giroux. Um, Uh, When it moves into an area, doesn't uh, Amazon insist on
1: receiving tax breaks and other financial perks? Yes, that's a a big part of what I found in my reporting, where I, I did a lot of public information requests from various governments and just found this incredible traffic of, of emails back and forth with Amazon demanding um, various kinds of tax subsidies and tax incentives to come to into a community and and local officials being um, all too eager to, to to give them those subsidies and also to promise uh, uh, secrecy and lack of transparency in in uh, in keeping those those deals from the public um, and what one thing that makes it so so remarkable that the company is able to extract these these tax subsidies from the local communities is that the company really it, it doesn't you you'd think it would not have a lot of leverage. The fact is, it needs to be in certain places with its warehouses to make the make its promise of one or two day delivery happen. And so, it's not like. Um, you know, say a factory where a factory doesn't can't go doesn't get the deals it wants in a certain place where it, it can just move move to a couple states further south. Um, in this case, they need to have the warehouses in, in certain places um, but but the communities nonetheless um, often just fork over these massive subsidies because because in a lot of cases they are so desperate to have any jobs at all. But doesn't experience. it have an
0: impact on the local tax base, reducing the amount of money that supports local services, the roads, the police, fire, schools?
1: Absolutely. It's a,
0: and then doesn't it's Amazon also uh, bring more demands for public services? There's wear and tear on the roads because of the increased traffic of cars and trucks and uh, frequent calls for emergency assistance at the warehouses. It's expensive,
1: Exactly, it's uh, there. There's a huge demand in services that in public services that's brought by the warehouses, and and they're not paying for it because they're getting such such large tax subsidies from the local communities, um, and and then you, and you think more broadly about the fact that that the, the jobs that preceded Amazon, these warehouse jobs. Um, Brick and mortar retail jobs that have been largely wiped out; those businesses were generally supporting the local tax base to a much greater degree. Um, and not only that, but those businesses were also um, supporting local media in the form of of advertising. Uh, one of the biggest sources of advertising for local newspapers um, and other media was was were ads from you know local department stores and and other sh- and shops and and when amazon essentially has now replaced brick and water retail um it leaves it, it it's just a, it's another big blow to the local press because they've lost that advertising amazon certainly is not going to be advertising in the local media mm-hmm. and so you end up with local press that is has um is much thinner on the ground and is not even in a lot of cases barely even around to cover these these tax deals that have been cut
0: but wasn't it seen as a blow to Governor Cuomo and Mayor De Blasio when Amazon canceled its plans in February 2019 to build uh, a large corporate campus in New York? After uh, it, it, it uh, had to leave because it faced strong backlash from lawmakers, progressive activists, union leaders who contended that a wealthy company like Amazon didn't deserve nearly three billion dollars in government incentives. But that didn't stop. Cuomo and de Blasio from promoting
1: it right but I mean that episode was a very crucial one because it showed just how um what happens in some of these cities that are experiencing the kind of effects of hyper what I call hyper prosperity just incredible housing costs um incredible congestion and gentrifying neighborhoods gentrifying neighborhoods concern about gentrifying neighborhoods Right, and 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 so you end up with with a situation where you have a large number of, of citizens, residents, who recognize that there's such a, that there can be too much of a good thing, and they see something like this come along, um, this this new headquarters with all these thousands of new high-paying jobs, and they're worried about. That the, about the effects it's going to have, and they're, they're also upset about the the tax subsidies that were offered. There were huge tax subsidies that that New York State and City offered to to the Amazon. In that case, the other it's worth noting that the the other sticking point that that basically that led Amazon to pull out of that that deal was was unionization. There was um, mm-hmm. the the this the uh, the state um, was essentially looking for Amazon to. As part of coming in, giving them the tax subsidies to come in for the second headquarters, there was an expectation that Amazon would be um, would not go overboard in opposing unionization at at warehouses in Staten Island, and that that the company would essentially, you know, play fair and square vis a vis the union organizers there, and. And that was apparently too much of a, a too tough a pill for the company to swallow, and and they finally said, "Sorry, we're out of here. We're not gonna we're not gonna build the second headquarters here."
0: As we mentioned earlier, the uh, the pay that Amazon's pay is quite a bit less than the manufacturing jobs that have been disappearing, despite the fact that the jobs in these warehouses are often nearly as strenuous on or physically taxing on on. Uh, the, the workers at the manufacturing jobs were, and uh, not only demanding, but also repetitive. How much of an impact has the increased automation in the warehouses and, and the use of robots had?
1: Wouldn't that have been a good thing? You'd think it would have, but it actually, it's, in some ways, it's made the work more um, repetitive and rudimentary and kind of mindless. Um, the, the best example of that is, is what's happened with the pickers. The pickers are the people who, you know, have to uh, go find the products that we we are demanding at any given moment, and and then send them off to the down the conveyor belt. And that job of picking used to be done by people walking up and down the corridors um, with a sort of handheld scanner that that told them where various items were, and they'd go hunting for them. And and that work was involved tons of walking, of course, and and was wearying in that regard, but there was some sort of some level of autonomy and kind of independence and in going off to look for your, look for stuff and, and even, you know, a certain amount of, um, you know, so you're, you're, there's a little bit of a hunt to it at least. And, and now, but now most of the warehouses, they're they so automated that they have these incredible robots that um, zoom around with stacks of shells on top of them. They're like these, they look kind of like little Ottomans and then they have these stacks of, of shelves rising up above them and they they bring they zoom around and they bring they bring the sh- the shelf with the given product to the picker who's standing in a fixed location all day for you know 10 hours just waiting for these these um these shelves to be brought right to them and they they pull the item out of the shelf and send it on its way and and so they're standing there all day just just pulling, 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 and um, and so it, it's actually become more not more mindless, and and also even higher demand because now that they have the robots bringing the stuff to them, they're expected to pick way more items. So they have to do about three hundred items an hour, yeah. um, and and in a sense, the work the work that's left for the humans to do in the in the warehouses is, is has not yet been self automated. Only because we we have a hard time they have a hard time teaching robots how to grab things that's been a hard <laughs> hurdle so we're, we're the, these humans are left there basically because of their capacity to to grab um and and but that's yeah it's it is it is a very demanding very repetitive kind of work and there's a reason why turnover in these turnover in these warehouses is now roughly 100 um, percent over a year over a year yes.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Alec McGillis, who that's M-A-C-G-I-L-L-I-S, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. And we're discussing his new book called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America, which is published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. You were talking about... uh, the, the fact that uh, this it gets a little the job has become more isolating hasn't it gotten worse during the pandemic because workers are being separated more on the floor so that they don't give each other the virus
1: that's exactly right I mean there was this of course this whole fear initially in the warehouses about catching the virus and quite a few people did um, and then when Amazon sort of belatedly tried to address that 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 concern it, one of the things it did was to space people out more on the floor, which meant that some jobs that that had a couple people doing a given task on the floor, now only had one person doing it, which made the job both more difficult because you had to do it on your own, and it also made it more isolated. So, you know, loading trucks, for instance, uh, with boxes to to send off, used to be a two-person job, now it's a one-person job, and um, and so that yes, that that it had, the, the job has gotten more, even more demanding both because of those measures and also because of course simply the fact that that we were all ordering so much more stuff that 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 just be, there was just way more demand on people to fulfill orders um, this past year it essentially became like the holiday rush the brutal hmm. holiday rush became permanent
0: you also point to a loss of community in these jobs because workers used to know all the people that they worked with and they would often socialize after work and now you say uh they, they'll do a grueling repetitive demanding 10-hour shift and and rush home
1: that's right um i was speaking with one former uh steel mill worker at the at the steel mill that's now an amazon warehouse and he still lives nearby and And he said that it's so striking at the end end of worker shifts now to see them just tearing out of the parking lot, just desperate to get home. And they go flying out at such high speeds that they've had to put in all these speed bumps in the parking lots there. And, and it's such a contrast with the old days at the steel mill when you would so often, of course, workers would just roll out of their shift and roll right into with their with with the other guys roll right into one of the bars or diners nearby. And I brought this, this up with a, With a uh, another recent uh, radio discussion, and and an Amazon worker actually called in, and he said, he said, yeah, you know, there's no way that I'm going to go out for a beer after work with Joe, you know, down the down the down the warehouse. I don't even know who Joe is. Um, You know, he might be only 50 feet from me, but I have no idea who he is because it's so much more atomized a kind of work community.
0: We began by talking about the. uh the disparities between wealthy areas and and poor areas in the country how does amazon choose the places where it wants to put offices and places where it wants to put warehouses
1: um well it those are two vastly different decisions those that's the Mm -hmm. whole thing that that you have you have the, the decision about where to put these sort of headquarters type jobs and those go in the winner take all cities not just seattle and washington but but other cities that have quite a few um, of so the salary high paid programmer and engineer type jobs there. And they're in, they've got 7,000 of those jobs now in Boston. They have several thousand in, in New York, even, even though New York ended up not getting the HQ two, it still has thousands of Amazon jobs, including several 1000 that They're now coming into the old Lord and Taylor flagship building um, on fifth Avenue, which is very kind of uh, sort of, you know, irony there that, and um, thousands more of those jobs in San Francisco and Austin, and and um, so they go where where that high tech workforce is because that's the, that's the name of the game now. You you're feeling like you have to be around those people so you can sort of draw off, um, draw them you know into your own workforce, and um, that's that's the nature of the the tech economy now. That it used that you it's all about it's all about about getting the you know, that the human capital to that's going to, that's going to, you know, innovate and, and make breakthroughs for your companies. It, it used to be, you could just go, this is the key thing. It used to be if you, in the manufacturing era, you could go build a factory anywhere that you, that you had the national resources and the, and the basic, you know, manpower, low skilled manpower to draw on and, and transportation to get your product to market. Now in the tech economy, you, there's this agglomerating effect where you have these winner take all cities where you want to be in those cities because that's where every, the whole name of the game is, is is getting the skilled workforce that's going to come up with the, with the new innovations. And so you, you as a company, you feel like you have to go to Silicon Valley, you have to go to Boston, um, wherever it might be, even if those places are very expensive, you feel like you have to be there. Um, and, and as a worker, you feel like you you want to be in those places. As a high skilled worker, you want to be in those places because you're going to have all sorts of places to choose from um, to work at. So so that's what happens at the at the headquarters level for a company like Amazon. And and then at the warehouse level, it's just a matter of of being of setting up anywhere where where they in roughly in the in the region they have to be to make their deliveries on time. And and then. Ideally, seeking out a community a community that's sufficiently desperate that it's going to fork over these these big t- big tax subsidies, and
0: and, and and if I remember correctly, didn't Jeff Bezos also demand a heliport uh, near the projected Queens facility? yes that was that was Um, that was one of the that was really a lot of chutzpah uh but i'm pretty much out of time but i just want to address one other thing you devote a chapter to amazon's push to become a top provider of office supplies to schools governments and other organizations why should that be a
1: concern well that that chapter was it was really all about the this the broader kind of assault on on small business around the country um small businesses including the ones I focused on in that chapter, which happen to be office supply dealers, um, who are under extraordinary pressure to to sell their wares on on Amazon as third what are called third party sellers, more than. It doesn't. Amazon collect
0: fees on on every item that it sells.
1: Exactly, that's that's the issue that that these these sellers uh, get access to in theory get access to a worldwide market of buyers, but but they're having to. Give up somewhere between typically between fifteen and thirty percent of their of their revenue goes to Amazon and various commissions and fees and but a lot but a lot of them just feel like they have no choice and it's been a terrible dilemma for small businesses all around the country. They just feel like they have to be on Amazon because that's where everyone goes to buy their stuff now. Um, but at the same time, they're they're facing these these rising ratcheting up fee, levels of fees and and they can barely barely you know make a profit.
0: Hasn't uh, Amazon also developed products of its own uh, based on uh, best-selling products, selling it under its own labels?
1: Yes, that's that's major controversy now, and it's something that Bezos was even asked about in, in testimony on Capitol Hill in the last couple of years. They they are they of course collect data on everything that happens on the site, and so they know when a given product is, has gone very hot, um, often very obscure sorts of products, and they'll suddenly be very hot, and they will, in some cases, then just start making that product, selling it under their own company, their own company labels, and just in, in an instant, essentially wiping out. Whichever um, whichever whichever company was making those sales on the site, it's and it's a you know that's become a major issue in it's these antitrust discussions like how the conflict that comes with both owning the platform and selling goods on the platform.
0: Well, how is that any different than the store brands that I find in my supermarket?
1: It's different because of the data the data part of it that the company's level of information about about the about the sellers is a, a order of magnitude greater than. Than what a grocery store knows about the, mm. the, the other the brands that are selling on its on its shelves. Um, there's just a, there's a there's a the level of the level of, of conflict there is, is much deeper because of all the data that the company possesses.
0: Alec McGillis, as I've been telling you, covers politics and government for ProPublica. His his new book is called Fulfillment: Winning and Losing in One Click America, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a fascinating conversation.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It was great.
0: And that brings us to the end of the show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write me about a show or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I just want to ask you one last time for your support for this station. We need your help to keep it and this show alive. So please step up right now and and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable by going online to give to WBAI.org or or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. And it has to be right now. Uh, If you want to get credit, Uh, as I mentioned at the half, if you become a a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, we'd be delighted to send you a free copy of the book we've been discussing today, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America by my guest, ProPublica reporter Alec McGillis. It's our way of saying thanks for helping us keep this whole thing going. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you very much.